0: Hey, welcome to The Coffee House. We are talking about Love Your Enemies, a bonus book by Arthur C. Brooks. The subtitle is How Decent People Can Save America From Our Culture of Contempt. This one was just kind of plugged in in the midst of all the other books that we're reading here. So I figured it's a very apt, very important topic for uh, where we are right now. I mean, we're on the verge of a a national divorce, at least, if not a kind of cold civil war. Uh, Arthur C. Brooks is a Republican writer. He has some suggestions in here for how we come back from the brink. Of course, we know how this works already. We go through the contents of the book. We do a little bit of analysis, talk some big picture stuff, and then now we have a discussion episode where we kind of expand on the ideas a little bit. Because there's usually a lot to go through. Okay, so it opens talking about how he's got liberals in his family, so we can't just go ahead and demonize liberals all over the place here. And he brings up this particular speech. So there was a speech that was given by a BLM supporter. He was at a Trump rally. And initially, it was very contentious. And lots of bad things were on the verge of happening. But the Trump supporters let this BLM speaker on the stage and have a moment to talk to the supporters in the crowd. And it was a little touch and go at first, but eventually they found some common ground and it was a great moment. It was viewed apparently on YouTube like 6 million or a bunch of millions of times. So it's supposed to be this big deal. And the guy's name was Hawk. So one of the things that the author that Brooks is getting at is saying that you don't have to choose between politics and family. And you can find common ground with people on the other side. And that the main problem that we have is a contempt problem. Is that we show contempt for the other side. So rather than answering with contempt, he wants to answer with warm heartedness. And he explains that contempt is a market phenomenon. That's something that kind of drives the market right now because we're in this attention economy. Then he goes into call, talk about the culture of contempt and how it applies to us. So motive attribution asymmetry, is a, is a big deal, is that where you attribute the motives of your opponent, apparently, amongst liberals and conservatives in the United States is as bad as it is between Israelis and Palestinians. <laughs> and contempt specifically means beneath caring about. So you've reached that threshold where you don't care about what happens to the other side now. It's the best predictor of divorce. And this is despite the fact that 93% of Americans believe that we are too divided, but people are addicted to it. Few people have friends from the other party, and he brings up this anecdote where he received this email from somebody who's reviewing his book, and it was a very vicious email, and he said he had three options. He could ignore it, he could insult the person, or he could destroy the person, but he went with uh, another option, which was just to kind of be nice and try to find common ground, saying, thank you for reading my entire book, I appreciate it, and then they ended up having a pleasant exchange after that. And offers this 5 to 1 rule, apparently it's a a psychological rule in marriage counseling that's used, that says that for every criticism you want to levy, you have to say 5 positive things first. So you you have to give them some support to a ratio of 5 to 1. Can you afford to be nice is another section here where he brings up the nice guy's dilemma and the study about the nice guy's dilemma that women actually chose nice guys when they were abstract people on a page and described in a particular way. I, I, this was all pretty meaningless to me. That He's trying to get to the point that to say that you can be a nice person, that it's okay. You can still get chicks, apparently. But the study seemed uh, woefully underdeveloped and actually had very little application He brings up, unironically, the IAT test, the implicit association test. And I think this was written in 2019. I didn't put the publication date, but I think it was 2019. IAT is one of those things that even the authors themselves said it has been way over applied and doesn't actually establish much of anything. For anybody who doesn't know, the IAT test is about how you make implicit associations, you know, negative associations with black and positive associations with white. And therefore, everybody's secretly, racist and so we have to do all these things to get around that but like i said the authors themselves even said that this really doesn't have much application when it comes to that and others have pointed out that it's pretty meaningless unless you tie it to actual behavior because you don't actually know what it means for somebody to make those associations So anyway, uh, then he goes on to say how love is a verb and that feelings follow the love. So I think this is more marriage counseling type stuff. But I think this is kind of a profound concept, honestly, (laughs) that love is a verb, that what you do is what you are. So if you act in such a way that you are acting as though you love somebody, then the feelings of love will follow that, which I think is actually quite useful and that can be applied to pretty much any area. He talks about leaders after this, where he talks about different kinds of leaders There like coercive leaders and authoritative leaders. Some leaders lead in a very negative way, and he cited the 2016 debates between Trump and Clinton to show how both of them were lead- leading in a coercive way. But he said you can be authoritative and you can be a good leader, but you don't have to be coercive. And then he goes in to talk about how I can love my enemies if they are immoral, and how we moralize everything now, which is bad. He brings up the height, Jonathan Height moral categories, so care, fairness or proportionality, loyalty or in-group, authority or respect, sanctity or purity. And along these different lines, how you line up on those moral questions is like what your politics is. And he brings up another profound point, important point, is that moral arguments beat money arguments, which is is sad, but they also beat logical arguments, so you have to be very cognizant of that. He talks about identity in the next section, where there's this story about this study where this Chinese couple, when the Chinese were being roundly attacked in the country, this Chinese couple went around to a bunch of hotels and motels around the country to try to get uh, rooms. And so they had this certain rate of being rejected from people who were renting out these rooms. But most of the time, they got a room and the people were nice to them and it was perfectly fine. But then when they called all these places to find out if they would admit Chinese people and how they would treat them, then a way higher percentage of those people said that they would discriminate against Chinese people. (laughs) So way more said they they would discriminate than actually did. So this to show that there are things beyond identity, and he brings up these different categories of B-words, not, not the B-word, but B-words. So there are breakers that drive people apart. There are bonders that use identity to unite people. and then there are bridgers who seek to unite people based on a, a diversity of categories. They bridge everybody together. So Democrats now might be bonders. They use identity to try to bring people together based on their identity, but that's bad, uh, just like being a breaker is bad, but bridgers are good. Then he goes into tell me a story. He brings up the cowbell thing from SNL how you just say, uh, more cowbell. But you get on the same wavelength as somebody else by telling a story. And he explains that just bringing more evidence and more evidence and more evidence to bear is like saying more cowbell, more cowbell. It actually becomes kind of deafening over time and doesn't actually do anything. And brings up the fact that crowds have a lower cognitive ability, (laughs) and that anonymity on the internet is bad, and we should repudiate anonymity. And implores everybody to tell their story in 12 words, write a 12-word story. I was going to do this, but I didn't get around to it, so I will at some point, though. Then there's a question of, is competition our problem? Because that's uh, been kind of going around, that competition is not a good thing, it's a bad thing. So in some places you have dodgeball banned, that's something I played as a kid. But there's this general trend against competitive activities, and it's the same thing in economics. They're trying to take the competition out of economics. And there's this idea of censorship, not just on social media platforms, but on campuses. And that's another way to take away the competition. And it's this substrate of shared objectives that we need first, is those shared objectives. And he suggests that everybody should go defend someone with whom you disagree so we can have those shared objectives. And then in the next section, he talks about these two people, Robbie George and Cornel West, who have completely polar opposite ideas on virtually everything in the political spectrum, but they've been friends for decades and have been talking about this stuff for decades. And that our situation should be an idea competition. That's what it should be. And that's how we get to the best ideas. No insults, no ad hominem, no attribution of secret motives, especially since you're generally clueless about the other side, you know, we, I know we read some book where they talked about this, how people just generally don't know what the other side actually thinks, and there's this weird thing where we, we pretend to know the deep motivations of people on the other side, but we really don't, and it's an unjustified leap to make to say that we do. And then he offers some five rules to subvert the culture of contempt. Number one, stand up to the man, refuse to be used by the powerful, watch out for ones that support your views. Number two, seek other views, break out of identity because it's something that sets us apart. Number three, say no to contempt, you know, that's something he talked about earlier. Number four, disagree better, A competition brings prosperity. And uh, hilariously, he uh, brings up hacking voting machines is not competition and deplatforming is not competition. This is before the 2020 election, by the way. And number five is to tune out. Tune out social media, tune out Twitter, tune out things like that that are trying to get your attention by making you outraged, which is, of course, easier said than done. It gives us that little jolt when we go on to those things. (laughs) Okay, that was the book. So in the analysis, it is way too optimistic, but at least he's trying. That's a lot more than we can say for a lot of us. We've gotten to this point right now where kind of the phrase that comes to mind is you can't hug a Nazi. You, you can't do it. That's what the left thinks. And that's the operative approach that they have to anybody on the other side. Fundamentally, we are working with people, people have certain levers, and it could work to use love instead of the counterattack that seems to be necessary. There's nothing especially groundbreaking in this book. There's some wisdom, you know, the love is a verb thing is good, it sounds hokey, but it makes a lot of sense and it could be very useful. The moral arguments beating money arguments, that's, you know, very important, very useful. Idea competition, of course, that's an excellent thing. It used to be just automatically assumed, that that's what we all want, the marketplace of ideas but it's something that's being sucked out of our culture in general. Contempt is the line, so you don't want to have contempt for anybody. You know, that's important. Again, it might be way too optimistic, because it seems like contempt is the pure modus operandi right now. And there's this apologetic tone, which seems to be just how Republicans function now, how conservatives function, is that they apologize for their positions. They're like, I'm sorry for being this, but can you please listen to me? It's, it's a problem. <laughs> That's not the way that uh, we should be communicating about complex political topics. All right, just to go on to big picture-wise, uh, it seems to me that Democrats have crossed the Rubicon. They have been dehumanizing conservatives for years, and it has at least contributed to the most dangerous political situation we've ever had, and tons of violence, including murder. The prerequisite for this love that he talks about is shared objectives, and if we don't have those, there's nothing we can do (laughs) except try to establish those shared objectives, but if we can't do that, then we don't have any options. When destruction of the other side is the objective, there's not much you can do with that. I mean, there's all this talk right now of deprogramming. Now, I heard this on when I went to a meetup, or at least attended a meetup, that talked about how we need to come back together. That was the whole point of the meetup. (laughs) And they talked about deprogramming. They talked about that all Trump supporters are so beyond the pale that they need to be deprogrammed. They're lumped all together as seditious. They call everything that doesn't agree with them conspiracy theories. They're completely unaccepting of any idea of them being wrong. I mean, there's so much. But it's this this use of vague standards that's the primary problem first it was Nazi that just kind of had some frayed edges so you try to shove some other people into there and then it's conspiracy theorists and then it's just people who traffic in misinformation or use hate speech or now the sedition idea that you just use a massive net to throw everybody in there but all these things are so woefully ill-defined that you can put whoever you want into one of those categories and just say that they are beyond saving and those are the people that we have to deprogram put into concentration camps to get them to right-think. And of course, all of them only apply to the other side, not to your own side. So, anyway, I mean, that's this book. I don't know that it has much of an impact. It would be great to be able to kumbaya and actually do some of these positive things, try to get somewhere, and I will try it. I absolutely will try it with some people. You know, there are a lot of Democrats right now who are disenchanted with the way that things have gone. You know, the classical liberals, the real classical liberals who love individual liberties and capitalism. They just think we need a little bit more social protection (laughs) So I will absolutely try it, but I really think that we have reached a whole new, when it comes to everything, political hostility right now. And, And so we'll see where it goes, but it's very difficult. You can't just forget the last four years of what's happened in our government. and You can't forget the rhetoric, you can't forget the violence, it's just, you can't forget it. So anyway, uh, thank you for listening to Coffee House. Thank you for coming in. And we will have a book coming up next week. It's going to be a good one. This one was one of those uh, massive eye-opening books that I didn't know virtually anything that this thing was talking about until I read this book. So it'll be really good. Hopefully it'll be good for you guys too. But hopefully you got something out of uh, what this person was talking about in this book. Or at least you don't have to go read it now. (laughs) We'll have a little bit of a discussion about some of these in a little bit more detail. But otherwise, hope all is well. Uh, and I hope you have a good week. I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye.